hello and welcome to another episode of the Line in the Sand podcast, the second episode for 2022. How are you this evening, Amos? Hello, Hamish. Hello, everyone. We're going all right. Uh, mm-hmm. Albeit parenting difficulties, but we'll get there. <laughs> uh, yes, we are both the um, parents of young children and it can be fun trying to find time to record this podcast. Um hopefully after our children go to sleep and hopefully yes. not too late in the evening. So it can create some interesting moments. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll yeah. put it out there. We may be interrupted at some point. It probably wouldn't be the first time and it won't be the last time, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Now, before we um, get into tonight's podcast, I just wanted to uh, touch on a more serious and somber note as we were recording Last week, uh, news broke in the media about the passing of Harley Ballack, uh, former uh, Fremantle and Melbourne player. I just wanted to um, pass my condolences to Harley's um, friends and family uh, and make note that if anyone is suffering and does need to speak to somebody, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. Yeah, I uh, echo those sentiments. It's uh, pretty tragic. Uh... And uh, something we can all just reflect on. Moving on to other parts of tonight's um, podcast, before we get into uh, the main topic of conversation for the evening, uh, I just wanted to congratulate James Hurd on getting back into the AFL with his new role up at GWS. As much as it burns me to see him at another club, I think it's probably the right path to take coming back into the AFL in a town that's not quite as um, as AFL-centric and um, not as likely to have media all over the front doorstep. I can't imagine it would be easy if he was going back into Telemarine in a similar role. There'd be media everywhere. So I think it's a great stepping stone back in, and I think it's good to see. Agreed. It's, uh, it's good to have him back, uh, Hamish. Uh, I'm wondering if it's going to grease the wheels between Jason McCartney and Adrian Dodoro to... Uh get a couple more deals done between us and GWS in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, he's got the inside knowledge and he's got the inside knowledge and the inside goss, doesn't he? That's it. That's it. So, and, uh, and what do you make of the the stories that it was Matt DeBoer, current day player for GWS, who sort of facilitated the, the union, shall we say? Well, I mean, yes, it's, um, you, you, he, they did say that he helped grease the wheels and make it happen. And good luck to him. If it did like, you know, you have to believe there's some truth to it because it came out and, Good luck to him. And, um, you know, I think it was clear all along that um, Heard wanted to get back into the game and um, was never going to be fully lost to the game. I, it probably wasn't the role I expected him to come back into, but now that it has happened, it makes perfect sense. And what is he actually going to be doing? Well, he's um, a part-time leadership development role. So, um and, you know, that makes sense. Like, he's been a captain. He's been the head coach. He, and he also studied um, leadership and various other stuff when he was off overseas studying. So, um, yeah. in terms of AFL knowledge and leadership, there, there are probably few out there that are as well equipped to deal with it, especially in terms of leadership and riding the highs as, you know, a premiership captain. And I don't think that you could say there are many coaches in the AFL that have ridden the lows the same way that James nah. Hurd has in, in any times, really not let alone just recent times. Correct. Yeah, I agree with that. I think he's, it's a wealth of knowledge uh, that he'll be able to impart. Uh, and I think from the lows experience, as you mentioned, we've 
don't want to mention the elephant in the room, but obviously the the supplement saga, yeah, he'll at least be able to provide the GWS uh, club um, with a dose of perspective if things are not quite right. Mm. Um, and that just goes for single entities, each individual player, if they've got a couple of things going on in their plate, he'll be able to help them compartmentalise, yeah. hopefully, and, you know, you know, uh, get the best out of themselves when they're at work. Um, mm-hmm. And then also, you know, be able to see the bigger picture as well. So I think it's, I think it's a good move. Begs the question, though, is he dipping his toe in the water just in time to get a Tasmanian appointment? Oh, look, I, I have no doubt that, um, you know, whether it's deep doubt or whether it's um, becoming more and more obvious by the day and given he's taken a new role, like he'd he'd have a burning desire to prove himself as a head coach or, you know, maybe head of football department, maybe it's not the head coach as the structures change, but, you know, he, he'd want to prove the doubters wrong. And you could see that from the way he acted around the times of the su- supplement saga. He's, yeah. Oh, you, you can tell he genuinely still believes he did nothing wrong at the time. Yeah, there yes. may be, um, given everything that's happened to him and around him, there's probably more contrition than there was at the time now with the benefit of hindsight. But um, he'd still have plenty of doubters that he wants to prove wrong and to prove that he has the ability to be that head coach or that head of that um, football department and deliver the results uh, many people thought they were on the way to doing it. Essendon before it all fell apart and the wheels came off. Yeah, I think yeah, I think you're right, and I think it'll give him well. Certainly, the experience will give him a much more uh, what's the word I'm looking for um, much bigger appreciation of how much oversight you have to have. Mm. It's one thing to delegate, but then you've got to be able to oversee exactly what's going on as well. So, um, yes, that's going to be that blend of experience that he brings back into the fold, which could yes. be invaluable in certain places. So, that's but uh, it could. Could be a pretty formidable uh, duo heading up Tasmania with Clarko and Hurdy at the helm. Has that <laughs> ever happened? Did you ever you, see you, anything? Oh, look, um, you know, well, Clarko didn't want to leave Hawthorne at the time he did too. And um, he's never said he wasn't going to come back into the AFL. He just said he wanted a year off. So if the, um, um, well, and we know that um, AFL headquarters are always ambitious to grow the game and expand. So it's the obvious next choice for a team, and um, why not? Yeah, why not? I think mm. all we're waiting on is the commission ratification. Yeah, for the uh, Tasmanian mm. push, yeah. uh, and maybe a few other things to be ticked. But I think that's due out this year. So, yeah. uh, I think Clarko's already got his hands on a consulting role there, but it could turn into anything. And yeah, well, maybe Heard can be the coach, and he can. Yeah, maybe Heard can be the coach, and he can be the head of the football department. Yeah, why not look at uh, that? That, that combination would be pretty powerful. So, mm. gosh, imagine we'd have to be united in something that'd be scary, <laughs> wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. I don't think it'd ever happen. No. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're yeah. united in our dislike of Geelong, but we'll we'll get to that later. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk, we will talk about the um, the rule tweaks and. Um, how that impacts Geelong, but we, maybe we'll leave that until we, after we've covered the main topics for the evening. Um, I agree. But before we get to talking about cricket and football, I just, um, I've had a request um, to clarify a few things for, um, from one of the games we mentioned in last week's podcast. Uh, so Carry on. please um, do. So my wife wanted me to mention that um, 
she was at the St Kilda and Essendon game when the lights went out and she was one of the people that ran onto the ground. She was a teenager at the time, mind you. Um, I always thought there was something about her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, she uh, apparently just before the lights went out, the uh, the love of her life, Gavin Wanganeen, uh, took a, a massive screamer in front of her and as he landed, he... Um, ripped up a sort of turf off the um, Waverley pitch. Um, so Catherine thought that um, her moment was um, just there and she had to take advantage of it. So when the lights um, went out, she jumped the fence, ran onto the field to pick up that sort of dirt. I don't think she still has it or she um, hasn't confirmed whether she still has it or not, <laughs> but that was um, certainly one reason for her to jump on All the right. ground. Um, and look, some of her male school friends that she was there with um, may have also been on the ground at the time and may have been a little bit more mischievous, but maybe I won't name any of them just to protect, mm. to protect the guilty and the <laughs> yes, some of the activities that happened that evening. Fair to say those northern suburbs people who just can't be trusted. I wouldn't no. Yeah. <laughs> the riffraff. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So such holy, I'm not sure how we allowed them. Southeast of the border, the border <laughs> being a Yarra River, of course. Yes, it's mm. uh, <laughs> yeah, no, it, I mean, it was an interesting night that one. And um, I, it begs the question I mean, Catherine had a couple of options, she uh, either got it signed, mm. she smoked it, um, or it's you know, prior to place somewhere in the in, in your household, you just don't know where, where it is. Well, it's certainly not on display in our household. Um, I haven't confirmed or haven't had her confirm or deny whether she's actually kept it or not um, yet. So mm. maybe, maybe I'm going to have to um, delve deeper into this and find out whatever happened to the dirt. Well, in the background, I can see an Essendon garden name. <laughs> no, maybe sitting behind that. Maybe. Mm. <laughs> anyway, we digress. Yes. Um, <laughs> now, tonight's... Um, Tonight's topic of conversation is, um, you know, it's it's summer. It's the summer of cricket. We've got the English team out here on a holiday. Let's face it, they're not out here to play cricket. Um, and so we thought we'd talk about those players that um, made the crossover between cricket and football over the years. Uh, we put together a list with some thanks to the AFL um, website that recently published an article on this and some other research that we've done. Um, I think we do need to thank the English cricket team for finishing early, Amos, um, to, so yeah. we can record this podcast this evening without having to worry about missing any of the cricket. Well, it's fair to say it wouldn't have gone ahead mm. because no, I dare say true. we would have been both glued mm. uh, watching the last rites of what's been a pretty dominant Ashes series. So, yeah. yes. Tell you what, yeah. it, it was a fair capitulation in Hobart. <laughs> My goodness, mate. Now, the club I play for was famous for batting collapses too, but that uh, that was one out of the box, that one. So, um, you know, it was a Calypso collapso for sure. Yes. I, I, look, I, I genuinely thought they had a chance the way they started. I'm like, is this, gonna, is this all going to go pear-shaped for the Aussies? Are they going to yeah. lose this with that kind of lead? But no, true to form, England fell over and they fell in a hole very quickly. Yeah, exactly right. Once the openers were gone, it was uh, mm. very little resistance from anyone else. Yeah. I mean, a couple of unlucky dismissals up the top with a, you know, playing playing back onto your stumps, but uh, mm. even still, um, yeah, it was just an utterly dominant performance by the Aussies. Uh, and I think I read somewhere today it was the fourth innings in his career that Nathan Lyon has not been required to bowl mm. over 100 and 
four or five test matches that he's played now. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, wasn't required to bowl. Uh, I think in Melbourne as well when we rolled them for 70, 70 mm. So, yeah, two of those four have happened in the last three weeks. So he might be feeling on the outer. <laughs> I still think I still think Scott Boland should have got man of the series because oh. I don't think anyone had a bigger impact on the series for a player that didn't play all of the tests. I don't know. I'm very bullish on uh, Cameron Green, as my wife publicly stated today. There's a bit of uh, getting up here. I want to buff him about Cameron from <laughs> <laughs> the 12th man. <laughs> so yes, but um, no, either I think any any of the players Aussies could have won it comfortably. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, we're getting a bit off topic. This is not a cricket podcast exclusively, so we might try and get back on track. And let's face it, we'll probably get distracted again because we like talking <laughs> about cricket as well. Um, so we've got a list of players that we just wanted to have a chat about this evening. We're going to go in date order from the earliest um, crossover players to more current ones. Um, now, it's fair to say that... Um, you know, whilst Amos and I are both approaching middle age, we're not that old. So some of the earlier players, we um, don't have much information on other than what we've read. So that um, the discussion around them may be a bit shorter before we get to more current times. But we're going back to the 1930s to start off with. Um, well, 1920s and 1930s, to be fair. Um, Victor Richardson is the first um, player I wanted to introduce you to, Amos. Um he started, he started as a footballer. He was a champ, um, champion footballer in Sturt in South Australia. He um, played 114 games in a career that was interrupted by the First World War. He um, did win a McGarry medal in 1920 and captain South Australia in 1923. Yep. And then also, uh, excuse me, captain Australia on the 35-36 tour to South Africa. Yeah, so, so it's a fair gap in... Um, in sporting prowess then yeah. 15 years later coming back and playing um playing cricket afterwards so he did yeah. he'd, he'd been a fair age then late late 30s early 40s probably coming back and um playing his um cricket then well clearly had leadership potential was born in mm. 1894 so captain at the age of 41 mm. uh, and another footnote with victor richardson uh grandfather of uh Ian Gregory and Trevor Trappel. Okay. So spawned, uh, yeah. Or, you know, grandfather of two uh, future test captains as well. So, um, yeah, such a, well, that's a big, big enough legacy as it is. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah. There, there seem to be a few family connections throughout the um, decades that have helped people choose the sport they um, ended up concentrating yeah. on in the end. Definitely. So, mm-hmm. uh, but no, I mean, that's, a, I mean, he's got, Gates named after him at the Adelaide Oval. So mm-hmm. what bigger honour is there? Yeah, so I think his name's on a few of the honour boards there as like as well as he said, yeah. the Gates named after him as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, next up, we have Swans Hall of Famer, Laurie Nash. Yeah, uh, part of the 33 Premiership team uh, and captain in 37. Yeah. Uh, fast bowler who played two tests for Australia. Yeah. Debuted in 1932. So... 32-33 was a pretty big year for Laurie Nash. Yes, he um probably even then one of the last players that was sort of really playing both at that top level at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, to debut for Australia yeah. and then win a VFL Premiership these days, you'd be loud, you know, lauded. Mm. And um, mm. 
I mean, obviously, we'd be able to play both, but uh, yeah, what a 12, 18 months he had. Mm-hmm. And um, like Victor, there is that family legacy there. His um, father, Robert, played for Collingwood and um, coached Footscray and didn't play for Australia, but did manage to play against an English team that was touring in the 20s as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just great legacy, great family, family mm-hmm. lineage. So um, I was trying to find and see if there's anyone, you know, come from, from further, you know, closer down the line, but it doesn't appear to be. But, um, you know, I'd take that 18 months and 32, 33 for sure. Yeah. Um, next up, uh, one of the, we're probably getting to some of the more famous players we got there, uh, Keith Miller. Yeah, known as uh, one of Australia's great all-rounders. Um, debuted uh, test cricket, I think, 40, 46, 47, when we played New Zealand in a one-off test, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, part of Bradman's Invincibles in 48. Uh, and amazingly, uh, was able to combine uh, VFL football uh, for the Saints during the Second World War, as well as being um, uh, a pilot in the RAAF. So, yep. um, and also known as one of the more charismatic characters, uh, if you get my drift, that we've had uh, in our sporting circles at the time. <laughs> <laughs> mm. So, but uh, I think I have not, I mean, there's a statue of him in front of the MCG. Um, I don't think I've heard anybody over the decades that I've been following sports say a bad word about Keith Miller. No. No, it's all been, yeah, fairly positive about him. But yes, he did have those. Um, boyish good looks that are, you can understand why the, um, he was considered charismatic as well. Yes. Yes. Next up, um, these um, probably more famous for their um, football instead of their cricket, but um, two Hall of Fame legends of the AFL, Daryl Balduck and Barry Robberin, Um They didn't represent Australia, but they were both able to represent their uh, states in first class cricket, Daryl playing in Tasmania and Barry in South Australia. Yeah. Um, and then obviously dominated the football scene, Daryl mm. uh, Tasmania and for St Kilda. Yeah. And later coach of the Saints, I think in the late 80s as well. Yeah. Um, and Barry Robin, um talk about lineage. Um, you know, both of his boys uh, played for Essendon and Hawthorne, yeah. would you believe? Mm. So. Yeah. Uh, as well as I think uh, Matthew, it was played in the two Adelaide Crows premierships in the um, 97, 98. So um, yeah, um, I don't think we're going to see anyone who's able to play state level footy and state level cricket again, unfortunately. No, um, not, not to the same level. Absolutely not. Um, As we'll get to discuss later, those that um, had potential at both that were sort of forced to pick one as we get to more current days, as everything becomes more professional. I don't think we'll see another repeat of the um, next player we were going to mention. Um, I don't <laughs> think um, Peter Bedford uh, as the 1970 Brownlow medalist and playing 39 first class matches for Victoria in the late sixties and early seventies. I don't think we're going to see a repeat of something like that at that level. No, is, is it, isn't that amazing? You can play mm. cricket for your state between 66 and 73, 39 matches. Yeah. And in the midst of that, win perhaps the most coveted individual uh, mm. accolade in the VFL at the time. 
mm. by winning the Brownlow Medal in 1970. Um, that's just that's yeah. unbelievable. That is, I didn't yeah. I didn't realize he'd won while still playing, you know, concurrently. Oh yeah, uh, it was only after reporting this um, or researching for this podcast that I um, worked out that yeah, it was at the same time. Like I knew yeah. that he'd done both, but um, yeah. happening at the same time. Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. Could you imagine? Like he'd never be home. He'd be constantly doing uh, you mm-hmm. know, pre-season. It'd be Tuesday and Thursday night training for cricket, and then Monday and Wednesday training for footy in pre-season and vice versa. Mm. How good would that be? Four nights a week, and then Saturday's <laughs> game day. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Not I sure. mean that, but that's yeah. still amazing. I'll definitely yeah. never see that again. Yeah. And if we did, my goodness, yeah. might have yeah. to uh, hock down to a Liston Trophy and a Victorian Cricketer of the Year or something. But yeah. uh, certainly never a Brownlow. No, you, I, I wouldn't. I don't think we'd be seeing that anytime soon. Uh, next up, um, a teammate of. Um, Mr. Bedford's at the in, in the Victorian cricket team, um, Max Walker. Yeah, what a legend, ga- eh? Yeah, hundred game player for the Demons, uh, and then thirty four match Test career. Yeah, I, uh, uh, Mac, big Max, like the hamburgers. Um, mm. He was always one of my favourites, and I think it's because yeah. my older brothers had his books uh, when we were kids. You know mm. how to hypnotise chooks and and all those sort of things. Um, and I remember as a kid, uh, I got given um, uh, the tape, of, you know, cassette tape um, of him uh, reading his books. And so I used to fall asleep mm. to them every night. Um, and the story that always uh, stands in my mind is when they're touring the West Indies in the early 70s and uh, Dennis Lilly gives the poor West Indian cab driver the fright of his life by banging on the side of the car every every time pretending that they've hit someone. And uh, you can imagine how uh, rudimentary the transport would have been in the Caribbean back in yeah. 1971, 72 or whenever they were over there. But um, oh, I, I loved Max Walker. I just thought he was mm. great on TV. Um, you know, fully trained, fully fledged architect as well. So mm. did his architectural studies whilst playing, uh, well, I guess you'd call it semi-professional sport at, sport at the time. Mm. Um and basically grew up in a pub because his old man ran uh, pubs around Hobart. So, um, no, he unfortunately not with us anymore. But uh, what a life the man led. Yeah. So, and um, yeah, I think touching on what you mentioned, um, you know, your brothers having the books and stuff. I think y- you can't ignore his media and writing career post uh, cricket and football. I think he published fourteen books, if I remember correctly, um, and he's um like you said he um you know the 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 spoken word books like reading the books the tape like he had that great voice and that um allowed him to thrive in the media but also have a very strong public speaking um career as well i remember in the early 2000s um he um was very big on the business networking circuit. There were quite a few lunches and um, breakfasts that I went to where he was the guest speaker coming along there. And um, he'd always have some witty a- anecdotes and relate it <laughs> back. He, like, he related it back to the audience. He, he did his research um, on yeah. who he was speaking to and made sure it was relevant to the people that were in the room. And that always impressed me. Yeah. One of, one of his later books, uh, I think it's called a chip off the old block was a, a lot more, I suppose, autobiographical where he talked about, his uh, childhood growing up mm. in Tassie, uh, yeah, with his father, 
um, who was uh, a publican and that sort of thing. And um, yeah, you could tell just through the storytelling um, that he is very astute, despite the mm. larrikin persona that may have come through on Wild World of Sports and obviously embellished by the 12th man. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, he is very astute as I said, was a fully trained architect and ran an architectural business, I believe, hmm. uh, for a period of time, as well as his media commitments and, and everything else going on. So, um, yeah, just someone who led a very, very full life and certainly didn't leave a stone unturned to get hmm. uh, everything out of it, that's for sure. Hmm. Next up, Simon O'Donnell. Um, he played a couple of seasons with the Saints and um, in 82-83, but probably thankfully for his own career, switched his focus <laughs> to cricket um, very quickly after that. Um, he played six tests, but um, that's certainly not what he would be um, best known for. Um, he, um, you know, he came to fame during the, um, you know, the golden era of the 50 over cricket. And, you know, I, I'm a bit sad. I think we should see more of the 50 over cricket um, just personally. Um, Agreed. But, you know, well-known, um, famous all-rounder, and um, his biggest game, I think most people would agree, would be that um, 1987 World Cup. Now, I don't really remember it well at the time, but I have watched the, um, given I was only sort of um, four or five, but I have watched a replay of it in the years since, and he um, was pretty amazing that day. Yeah, well, a couple of anecdotes to come out of that uh uh story was um so through the 87 world cup he noticed a a, a growth on his ribs mm-hmm. um didn't think much of it of course being a young fella and you know pretty fit and obviously playing for your country you're not going to do too much um you know worrying about things like that but it kept getting a little bigger and a little bigger and a little harder and anyway he was pretty concerned about it and um eventually told i think it was and this is coming from uh, if anyone listens to the Howie Games podcast with Mark mm-hmm. Howard, um, but I think he told Bob Simpson the night before the match and just said, look, I've got a bit of a concern. It's not going to stop me playing tomorrow and it certainly won't stop me um, fulfilling everything the team needs me to do to get the job done. But um, if you see me not being as boisterous as uh, I might otherwise be, that this is why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, within days of returning to Australia, victorious, uh, he's in hospital receiving treatment for cancer. So um, pretty amazing he's able to, you know, fight through that mentally during the World Cup and then obviously um, fantastic that he survived that. Uh, and now one of our leading, uh, would you say, uh, horse, race horse owners. Yes, he, he does like to um, invest heavily in the horses and <laughs> um, he's found yeah. his passion there, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it also had a pretty solid media career, hmm. almost following in the footsteps of Max Walker through Wild World yeah. Sports and took over the uh, cricket uh, commentary team captaincy from Richie Benno for a period of time there. Mm. Um, and, yeah, obviously missed out by a, a bee's uh, appendage on uh, winning a Melbourne Cup. So mm. um, another one who's had a pretty full life mm. and, uh, and fair play to him. Yeah. Um, the next uh, player we're going to mention, I think um, every Australian would be thankful that he chose to focus on cricket uh, given his results over the years. Um, let's face it, he is the greatest leg spinner of all time. Um, Shane Keith Warne. 
Um, pretty pretty stacked forward line if he ended up uh, at the Saints uh, in the same uh, pocket as Tony Lockett. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think, yeah, we're all very, very happy that, uh, as he says, cricket found him. Yeah. So... Yes. Yeah, so look, you know, he 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 obviously had a lot of talent. He was able to kick. I think um, his biggest game was seven goals in an under 19s game for St Kilda. But um, thankfully, he was probably never going to take that um, next step to make it at the top level in football. So chose to focus on his cricket, and um, we all know how well that worked out for him um, yeah. since then. Mm. And despite, I mean, he's obviously had talent as a cricketer too, mm. uh, but reading his book that he did with Mark Nicholas a few years ago, uh, you know, he talks about just how much of a push he needed uh, from his longtime mentor, Terry Jenner. You know, um, I think one of the stories is he'd been through the academy and uh, him and Damien Martin or somebody sort of mucked around a bit there, but, you know, um, and then he got a couple of games for Australia, um, you know, against India where he got smashed all around the place and then decided to take things a bit seriously. He's rocked up at Terry Jenner's place in Adelaide with a, a slab or a six-pack or something, and Terry Jenner's basically torn strips off him saying, who do you think you are just because you've played one game for Australia? It doesn't mean you're anybody and, and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, they got straight into the hard work and getting fit or as fit as Warnie could be and, mm-hmm. you know, and then working on, the bowling side of things and the technical stuff and um you know as Warney described it's a pretty grueling process. Um but look where it got him. Just shows mm. that the hard work does pay off. So yeah. Yes, and um he had he certainly had his controversy over the years. There was the um the ban the time he was banned for taking the diuretic and um he certainly had his off field indiscretions post career but um I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think he'd do it any differently if he did his time over again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he could, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, look, he's one of the more erudite cricket commentators. He does love putting his opinion out there, and that's all fair enough, and everybody can shoot it down if they want to. But uh, when he actually talks technicalities on the cricket field, it, it's yeah. um, along with, uh, in my opinion, Kerry O'Keefe has also got the larrikin image, but yeah. when they talk technical... Um, Mm. It's very, very, um, yeah, strong stuff. Yeah. Yes, I um I noticed on Twitter the other day there was um some pushback on um against um Shane because he was talking about batting technique at the same time that I think it was Gilchrist was talking about batting and they were criticising him for um schooling Gilchrist on batting and <laughs> I, I I actually found that a little ironic like. Yes, he was never an all-rounder, but he actually had a relatively good batting technique. And let's face it, the guy played for Australia. It's not like yeah. he didn't know what he was doing. No. Um, look, compared to Gilchrist, Warney's technique was awesome. Gilchrist mm. just had amazing hand-eye coordination. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not a technique out of the coaching manual, that's for sure. Mm. Um, he held the bat up too high for most people. Um and, you know, eventually had to resort to putting a squash ball in his bub to relax his grip Yeah. Um, whilst he was batting. But, uh, mm. I mean, look, if I could have either of their careers, it's a toss of the coin, yeah. really. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for me, yes, I agree with you. I think, um, you know, if you look at true batting technique, um, 
warns was more traditional. And it's not like he couldn't bat. He, in his 145 test matches, he made 50 or more 12 times. He never quite made it to 100, but he made plenty of 50s. Oh, yeah. He probably had two or three genuine chances to get a ton. Obviously, he hmm. burnt one in Perth when he tried to smack the New Zealand bowler to Kingdom Come and got caught in the boundary when he just had to push hmm. it around the corner, really. Yeah, he made a 90-odd against England in the Ashes in 2005 when they their bowlers were all over us, um, you know, and took 40-odd wickets at the same time. And I think he was up there in our leading run scorer charts in the same series. So, mm. um, and yeah, as we'll probably see in the uh, documentary that's coming out about him next week, I think you know at the same time his life was crumbling around. So, yeah, um, yeah amazing mental capacity, warning. Uh, next up, uh, we're going to talk about probably the last player who played both sports at as high a level as he did. Um, Craig Bradley, um, superstar footballer in Port Adelaide and then over at Carlton, played for Australia in the under-19s um, prior to choosing to focus mostly on football but probably one of the few guys that continued to play cricket at a high level throughout his football career, um, playing first in first class in South Australia and then um, playing district cricket for the MCC when he was, um, when he moved over to Victoria to play for Carlton. I think, didn't he play a couple of games for Victoria as well? Or did I misread that somewhere? Uh, no, he played yeah, just in the, the, uh, district competition didn't he but um mm. even still district cricket is no small commitment mm. uh yeah and the fact that he played well, 375 games for carlton and before coming to carlton 98 games for port in the yeah. SANFL, um uh, you know well and truly well you know uh, a gun football to play almost 500 games of senior football uh, and couple that with the commitments of uh, state-level cricket in his early years, but uh, it's an amazing effort. Mm. Uh, but he was, yeah, I don't know if you remember watching much of him, Hamish, but uh, certainly one of the fittest guys going around. Yeah. And even in the early 2000s when he was coming to the end, you could still see he had the nous and the ability just to get around the ground as mm. he needed to, to, to um, you know, get in the right position so that Carlton... Uh, yeah, he was there at the beginning of their ending, basically, I think it's fair to say. Um, although, um, obviously, the previous 16 years have been pretty successful for him with a couple of premierships and whatnot. But, um, yeah. yeah, just an amazing athlete, really. Yeah, while you were talking then, I did just quickly look up. He did play a couple of games for uh, South Australia and Victoria. So he did play shield cricket. It's just not a huge amount. Um, and yeah, yeah. most of his games were at district level. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, that's still pretty amazing because I think it would have been late 80s that he played for yeah. Victoria mm. uh, in the midst of a burgeoning football career where he was a premiership player at Carlton. Uh, yeah, and they were a strong team in that era. So mm. he wouldn't be getting onto the cricket field until late September, October. Uh, yeah, although early 90s, Carlton did have a, a bit of a dip, but then straight back into it, sort of 92, which is probably when he stopped playing cricket, to be mm. honest. So, because then it was obviously becoming all encompassing uh, with footy. And I think he would have made the right call. He's probably made a lot more dollars out of footy than he would have out of cricket at the time. Yeah. I'm not sure the um, 
cricket contracts for Shield players <laughs> were quite the same level back then as they are now. I would have been a bag of chips and a can of Coke, I think. Was the... mm. Yeah, pay-to-play so, kind of thing. That's it. Mm. That's it. And we'll, you know, If you can't afford the plane, you can get a train over to Perth just to play. <laughs> but, mm. um, yeah, I think Craig Bradley's football career just stands up on its own. And the fact that he was able to couple that with cricket is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, and all my, I guess um, in the same vein as Peter Bedford, if you, a McGarry medalist uh, whilst playing both sports, I think. Mm. Is that my right in saying that? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Next up, we're gonna. I'm gonna lump two players together because um, they have a lot of similarities between them. Um, Brett Delidio and Mark Murphy. Um, now, both of them would be much better known for their AFL careers, both being number one picks in the AFL draft one year after the other. But I wanted to put them together because they also played cricket together. They both played in a Victorian under 17 side um, in 2004 at the national championships. Uh, fun fact, um, Aaron Finch was in the same side as them and they beat a new South Wales team that included David Warner and Jackson Bird. Yeah. Who actually got Mark Murphy out according to your notes. So yeah. um yeah, that's uh, pretty amazing. And I think what's more amazing, particularly for Brett Delidio, um, he's in the under-17 cricket team that won the national title and drafted in the same year. Mm. So, yeah, that's a, that's a big year for any teenager to try and navigate their way through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and pretty amazing coming from uh, country Victoria as well. I think he's a Coabran boy from memory. Yeah. Um, so pretty amazing one to be picked in a national underage cricket team. But then also to be top of the pops in your draft class mm. um, at the same time, that's a very impressive effort. So, yeah. Um, similar uh, time frame as both of them, Shannon Hearn. Yeah, um, I had not, no idea about this one, actually. Yeah. Hadn't yeah. seen that until we popped this up before. So, Yeah, he was offered a contract at South Australia but chose football and... Um, Given, you know, he's um, a captain of the club, games record holder, um, won a premiership, I think. And, you know, he's a legend of the club and will continue to be yeah. remembered as so. I think he made the right choice of sports. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. Um, mm. I'm just jealous of the ability to get a, offered a contract for state-level cricket as well as being <laughs> <laughs> drafted as a footballer. Mm. Um I, I, if I look at Shannon Hearn, the footballer, I can't see a cricketer in that body. But if I think of what he could be, he'd be the most unflappable cricketer you've ever seen. I mm. don't think he'd engage with anybody on the field, yeah. let alone uh, you know any sledging or anything like that. If people tried to talk to him, he just would yeah turn, he, turn his back right. on them. Basically, like, yep. not listening. Yeah. No, yeah, mm. and, uh, yeah, it'd be a very small, compact uh, wave of the bat if he scored a fifty or a hundred or you know took a five for or something like that. So. Um, yeah, mm. but uh, I mean, what a great player he's been for West Coast. I think you've said it all with your list of achievements there. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, um, I'm yeah. jealous of his uh, abilities. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, there's nothing wrong with being a hack cricketer for your local club, um, Amos. <laughs> enjoying your Saturday afternoon there? No, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. Trust mm. me, it's, uh, it's the highlight of the week some weeks. Mm. And yeah, it can very quickly turn to the low light as well. I'll give you that. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Next up, um, Australia's favourite cricketer, Mitch Marsh. Oh, he's uh, enjoying a rich show like Renaissance, isn't he? After his mm-hmm. exploits at the cricket at the T Twenty World Cup, but yeah. Um, yeah um, I wonder what could have been with him had he have chosen football mm-hmm. instead of cricket. Yeah, gone down the uh, the altar ulterior pathway, uh, alternate pathway, I should say, given uh, his father and brother's uh, exploits in the national team. But um, mm-hmm. I think when you look at what they did, uh, Jeff as one of our opening batsmen and, and Sean, you know, forging his career while Mitch was probably making that decision. I don't mm. think the decision would have gone any other way, to be honest. Yeah, I think um, given the family name and the family involvement, it was always going to go one way. But, you know, he played in the same under-18s championships um, as Nick Nat, Daniel Rich and Stephen Hill. So he um, yeah. was playing it up there with the um, best of them. But, like, as you said... Um, his renaissance and his um, exploits at the T Twenty World Cup um, just recently gone show. I think he made the right choice, and um, it's all come to fruition there. Yeah, I think so. And I think uh, if I look at his body type, you know how he plays cricket today. I'm just trying to trying to work out, you know, where he would fit on a footy field. I mean, obviously he'd probably be a lot leaner, mm-hmm. uh, not so muscle bound to play footy. But um, I don't know, he'd be that. I just think he'd be that slow, old-school centre-half forward, contested marks all over the place, you know. Um, I can't see him having too many tricks to his trade, and that may be doing him a disservice on the mm. footy field, but I just can't see it. Oh, well, I mean, the, the notes that I read said that he was a key position forward, and I like, I agree with you looking at his body and imagining what his body would have looked like as a footballer. Yes, it was um, underage, so the muscle mass is not necessarily going to be the same as... Mm. Um, someone playing at the elite AFL level, but um, just his height and um, imagining the muscle he would have been on the head, it'd be up forward and trying to take those marks over the packs. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So um, our next uh, contestant, if you want of a better term, has a very interesting pedigree Mm. in in, uh, AFL circles. Yeah, and um, he's mentioned here in the order because of um, his pedigree when he first... um, came onto the scenes as a footballer because um, that was probably where he was likely to end up first. And, and he, I mean, he would agree and say that as well. Um, Alex Carey. Yeah. Um, technically the first captain in GWS um, as the list was put together as an under 18s team. Yeah. What a you know, <laughs> feather in your cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, skippering the Naples squad in uh, 2011. Can you believe that they've been around 10 years, both mm. those two expansion teams, by the way? Mm. Um, and, and obviously now uh, test wicket keeper. Yeah. So uh, I think he's done enough in the five yeah. tests to carry on to Pakistan where they head next in March. But, uh, you know. I yes. Think, he, uh, um, yeah, he, look, he won a best and fairest when they were in the NEFL, but um, given all the draft picks that they had by the time um, they added to that list, he realised that he'd probably, even though he'd led them to... Uh, through that year, yeah. he he was probably going down the pecking order slightly, and um, yeah, given the screamer of a catch he caught um in that second innings in Hobart, I think he's made the right choice there of sport for him. Oh yeah, I mean even watching him in the uh, twenty nineteen World Cup over in England, you know, yeah, I thought, geez, yeah, if Tim Payne's got to do something pretty special to maintain his spot for much longer. Yeah. Um, Obviously, we know how that came about, but um, yeah, he just looks so good in that one-day 
uh, World Cup uh, with the bat as well. So it was good to see him get a few runs uh, yesterday as well. But, uh, yeah, I think pretty good feather in your cap. You captain the GWS Giants in their inaugural season, uh, mm-hmm. albeit in the lower competition. You're a captain of your state. Um, yeah, and I think I could be wrong, but I'm, you know, potentially may have been a stand-in vice captain uh, in the one-day setup, just in case uh, Aaron Finch or somebody went mm. down with a couple of other injuries around at the same time. So, um, yeah, certainly got leadership, you know, written all over it, really, doesn't it? So, from one Alex to another, um, Alex Keith. Now, yeah. I think oh, he's always been an interesting story for me. Um, <laughs> was going to be the next best thing at the um, Gold Coast, but decided he wanted to play cricket in Victoria. Never quite made it um, in cricket. Um, so decided to move to Adelaide and give it another go as a footballer and um, hasn't really looked back. No, I mean, I remember seeing him in a few game, BBL games for the Melbourne Stars and you just thought, who's this six foot five kid? I mean, we all knew the story, obviously, about mm. being uh, drafted or put on the Gold Coast list and things like that. But you just thought, even as a cricketer in the, the BBO, I thought, God, he's a bit tall, a bit gangly for, you know, to be that kind of batsman that he was touted mm. as being and that sort of stuff. So um, I think um, certainly made the right call to go back to footy. Mm. Uh, and, you know, is a mainstay of well has been for the Crows and, and now the, the Bulldogs' back line. So, mm. um if it wasn't, if they didn't run into the the freight train that was Melbourne last year, could easily have been a premiership, premiership player. player. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Um, I, I also look at him now and go, hang on, is he still like six foot five? Because given all the muscle he's put on to play footy, he does not yeah. look like that kid that played for no. the Melbourne Stars back in the day. Yeah, so, you can also remember he's um, standing around a lot of other people that are six foot five as well. Yeah, that, yeah cricket, exactly. A few people are a bit shorter. That's right. It was a great mm. photo last night of the, uh, I think the Ashes batsman, and you've got all the batsmen, you know, Kawaja, Smith, Head, Warner, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, with Cameron Green in the middle, who's a good, looks like a foot and a half taller than all yeah. of them. So, <laughs> I think that would be Alex Keith. Yeah. yeah. Next up, Stephen Caniglio. Yes. Wow. One Giants captain to another. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I was amazed that he was... Uh, I had heard, actually, a few years ago, but it never really registered too much that he was a very talented cricketer. Um, didn't realise he'd sort of played against Pat Cummins. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's been a gun footballer for the Giants yeah. for, for a decade. Um, perhaps his captaincy stint hasn't turned out maybe how he'd like it, but, um, yeah, he's still only, what, 28, 29 years of age, so he's got mm. a few years to uh, to rectify that. And uh, yeah, he's. I mean, he's been had a fair few injuries as a footballer, particularly with his ankles and things. But still a gun. I'm still disappointed that Hawthorne didn't get him a couple of years ago when we threw the kitchen sink at him. But uh, mm. you know, that's the way it goes. Yeah, and um, he said so himself that um, it wasn't necessarily an easy choice for him, um, and um, he, it was almost a toss of the coin decision. But um, um, playing it in a waffle grand final and um, starring with, uh, I think it was four goals. He decided that um, football was for him. And again, like many others, it was probably the right choice given um, 
his relatively successful career since then, other than, like you said, most recently, his um, stint as captain hasn't panned out just yet, but there's still time to re- resolve that and get that sorted out. Yeah, I think yeah, I think he's made the right call. I mean, there's no never a guarantee, despite the uh, one of a better term, newfound riches in the game of cricket with uh, the 2020 mm. um, side of things. There's no guarantee you're ever going to get picked up by one of the IPL franchises or mm. in the UK these days where you're going to earn those dollars. Um, and certainly there's only ever six batting spots available in the test team. So, um, yeah, you've got to be ultra, ultra good to get to that. Mm. And who knows, he may well have been. Um, and we could be talking about him in a different different light, but um, certainly playing AFL and earning 500k a year. Uh, if you're just looking at it from a monetary sense purely, um, yeah. very much made the right call. Mm. And... Um... The last one I sort of wanted to touch on this evening, probably not in the same level as some of the other players we've discussed, um, but worth mentioning in this podcast because of the potential that was there is um, Will Sutherland, the um, son of uh, Cricket Australia CEO, James Sutherland. Um, He was touted as a... Um, someone that was going to go relatively high up the draft order if he did choose AFL. He um, played played football and cricket for Scotch College here in um, Melbourne, but made the decision to stick to cricket and sign a contract with Cricket Victoria. Yeah, and I think uh, given he's only you know, 22, 23 years of age, it's still been a pretty... Uh, relative success given he's uh, virtually a mainstay for the Melbourne Renegades in the BBL. Mm. Um, he's won the uh, Young Cricketer of the Year award in uh, 2021 uh, for the Bradman Medal. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talent there. Um, certainly uh, a very handy bowler. Mm. Um, not sure about the current hairdo that he's sporting at the moment, <laughs> but anyway, he's not alone. Mm. Um, but the, um, yeah, I think he's got, if he sticks at it, he's got every chance of, um, you know, uh, pushing through the ranks, being an excellent player for Victoria. And mm. Maybe, just maybe. I'm not going to um, say that he will, but there's, you know, he, he goes well enough. He could be, uh, you know, an Australian fringe player. Who knows? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if we have discussions about, the crossover between cricket and football in the future. It'll be players more like um, him, him that we're talking about those that star at both at school level, but are making the decision earlier. I don't think we're ever going to see a Craig Bradley style um, nah. player that will play both at the same time. Once they finish school, if they're going to be an elite sports person, yeah. you may see, you may see another Alex Keith again, that, changes their mind after a couple of years and tries to go back to the other. But I think it's more, um, it'll be in well, the, the same mould as both of them that you see them pick one and either stay there or, um, you know, they, they may have a bit of fun and play it for a local team occasionally on the weekend. You see that occasionally, but I don't think anyone's yeah. going to be playing at the same level as Craig Bradley was for as long as Craig Bradley was. It's just too professional now. And part of it is that they're not going to want their players to get injured playing a different sport as well. Oh, yeah, I percent agree. The contracts they sign will have all those clauses in them. Um, you know, they'll barely be able to walk down the street soon enough. But, uh, yeah, and I think it's lucky, uh, as, you know, both sports sort of cricket goes down the uh, odd 
you know, under 15, under 17, under 19 pathways, mm. footies under 14, under 16, under 18s, you know, for the, a lot of the representative stuff. So mm. you're probably going to see that choice being made at under 16, under 17 mm. age groups. Um, yeah. And there, it, for a lot of them, it could be a toss of the coin. Uh, and it could be uh, for some of them, you know, what happens on draft night even. Yeah. If I get drafted, well, I'm going to that footy's my bag. And if I don't get drafted, well, see what the next summer of cricket holds. And that could mm. be the key to unlocking a career there. So yeah. could all you know, rest in the hands of a recruiter or two. Mm. So, That's yeah. why they all have managers at, from a young age as well, to help <laughs> give them that advice and work out what they're going to do. Yeah, exactly right. So, mm. um, yeah, but um, certainly AFL talks about... Uh, yeah, wanting to be the biggest and the best sport in the country and, and cherry picking a lot of some of that elite talent away from other sports. But, uh, you know, a 2020 cricket coming along and there's a lot more uh, spots available to earn a decent living playing that uh, style of cricket. Um, yeah, it's going to take a few back from AFL over the years, mm. I think. So, yeah. It's, I know it's been good looking back at some of those, particularly some of the older players from my perspective, because you just forget about those stories. You know, Peter Bedford still yeah. uh, winning a Brownlow in the midst of your uh, state cricket mm. career. Yeah. <laughs> impressive stuff. So, there should be more of it, if you ask me. I know we won't see it, but there should be more of it. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I wouldn't be against it, for sure. So, yeah. Yes. Now, before we end tonight, we did flag earlier on Amos. Um, There've been a couple of rule, I, I suppose you'd call them tweaks. They're not really rule changes. It's more the way that some of the rules are being enforced. Did you want to touch on them a little bit before we go? Yeah, well, I think uh, the AFL has come out today and said there's going to be a stricter interpretation of time wasting. Uh, so players will not be warned anymore about, you know, uh, getting back off the mark and things like that. Or if it's clear that they're, uh, holding play up, uh, they'll just be awarded a 50 meter penalty against, uh, rather than saying right, you know, if you give the if you don't give the ball back, it's 50. It'll just be right, it's 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, stricter interpretations on the holding the ball rule, which I'm always uh, an advocate for. Uh, I think uh, the key item that I took out of that is if players, uh, yeah, and I think this has all been talked about in years gone by, but if players duck into a tackle, uh, they'll have deemed to a prior opportunity um, and it'll be a stricter interpretation of that and holding the ball. Um, I think both you and I raised a, an eyebrow and a chuckle and we immediately thought of uh, Joel, Joel Selwood. rule, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Uh, and there's a few others. Uh, certainly, uh, Paul Pluopolo from Hawthorne mm. used to be a master at it too, but he was five foot three, so it's probably uh, yeah. not as bad as Joel. But uh uh, and then the other part of that was, I think, uh, the wording that came out was that if a player has been able to be settled in taking a step or in possession of the ball and doesn't dispose of it correctly, they'll be immediately pinned as holding the ball. Mm. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. We know that the umpiring will be hot on it for the first three or four weeks of the season uh, and everyone will be looking out for it and, and then it'll slowly... Uh, become the norm, I suppose. Yeah, or... the, the players will get used to it. The umpires will yeah. all uh, sort of come to more agreement about how exactly they're going to interpret yeah. it. But um, yes, I'm sure it'll be um, controversial for the first couple of weeks. And um, yeah. 
that there may be a couple of incidents that um, as we get into the well, pre-season and season that we discuss um, on a, as it gets interpreted. But I, look, I, I can't see anything too controversial in what they've done. Like, I think it's, you know, it's like the standing on the mark rule. I think that yeah. was um, something that people freaked out about early, but I think I, I like it. I think it's opened up the game and the yeah. players have got used to it now. And there's, you know, there's, there's occasionally still the mistake in the 50 meters um, yeah. awarded, but it'll be that same sort of thing. The players will get used to it. I think it'll open up the game a bit and especially the time wasting um, that, that, that became a bit of a joke. <laughs> oh, am I supposed to throw it back to him? Oh, which yeah, one am I throwing it back to just to right. um, wind yeah. some seconds off the clock? I think stopping that can only be a good thing for the game really. No, I agree with that one. I mean, and I'm an advocate for uh, getting back to the basic holding the ball rule from when the laws were written, uh, you know, 150 years ago. You mm. know, if a player does not dispose of the ball by foot or by punching the ball with their hand, um, then it's a free kick against because they haven't disposed of it correctly. Um, I'd love to yep. see it brought oh, back. It's, it's fair uh, given that, um, yes, the way some of them lose the ball and don't yeah. get um, pinged, it's... Um, yeah, a bit odd. Uh, yeah, for me, it's if you know, there's so much interpretation and grey areas uh, with the holding the ball rule. Uh, there's an opportunity to strip it right back to its core basics, mm. which is if you don't kick the ball with your foot or hand pass it uh, legally, then you are deemed to be holding the ball. And uh, I know that's very simplistic, and the game's changed. Uh, and it would be a totally different spectacle to what it was when the rules were originally written. Mm. However, uh, I do think that um, there's an opportunity there to be a lot more stringent on how the ball is disposed of as well. So, yeah, I think we're a uni- maybe maybe we can campaign for this, at Amos. I think we're a unity <laughs> ticket on this one, and that's the way yeah. it should be. Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, coaches have been bemoaning the fact that they've got 100 tackles in the game and three holding the ball free kicks. Mm. Uh, doesn't quite add up. So there's got to be something there. Yeah, we'll keep pushing for that. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think uh, you know, the sooner that uh, Joel Selwood gets pinged for ducking, then I think we'll all be happier. Yeah, it'd be good for the game. <laughs> it's a pity that it's going to be his last season. We won't see it again anyway. Mm. <laughs> so yes, yes. Well, this has been a, another episode of the Line in the Sand podcast. Um, Please make sure you subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to us. Uh, Share the podcast with your friends. And if you like what you've heard, please leave a positive review. Uh, We look forward to chatting with you again next week. Have a good night. Thanks, everybody.